0: Welcome back to the fourth episode of the winter quarter of the Stanford Politics podcast,
1: and Rip's last episode this year.
0: That's right. I uh, am leaving to go to Stanford in Washington, but the good news is, I, if my <laughs> fellow hosts allow it, could like call in and offer.
1: Of course, anytime.
0: Takes from my experience in D.C., our nation's capital.
1: Give us all of the hot gossip.
0: In fact, I'm going as a, pol- as a correspondent for the Stanford Politics Podcast exclusively <laughs> to be on the ground. We've expanded to be a bi-coastal operation, and I uh, have graciously volunteered to go to Washington as our uh, D.C. correspondent.
1: Yeah, we're really we're really moving up in the world.
0: Right. All right, well, let's get started. We're going to talk about our top news stories for the past few weeks, and we're going to go over a discussion about the national debt monetary policy, why it matters. Does debt matter?
1: Quick answer, no.
0: (laughs) (laughs) So we know Avdi's take. Yeah. And uh, we'll see where it takes us. Thanks for being with us. So my top story for the past few weeks is the uh, sort of an addendum to the national emergency discussion that I believe we had last time. And um, just about the fact that the House has passed a resolution to override the president's declaration of a national emergency. And as of this evening, with the confirmation that Rand Paul is going to vote with the dissident Democrats uh, and that there are three other Republican senators who are doing the same, it appears as if that will be able to pass the Senate as well. Which is big news. Huge news. Huge news. So big rebuke of the president. And Um, sort
1: of restores my faith in, like, the fact that the legislative branch can be an effective check on executive power. Right. Always a concern.
0: Right. So, I mean, uh, my question is, I wonder how, like, what is Trump's next move, right? Like, this whole time he's been, it's been like, I'm either going to shut down the government or I'm going to declare a national emergency. And so if he can't declare a national emergency, or he did, but he doesn't work, what's his next move? what's his play
1: I think I think he can I th- he'll probably spin some sort of immigration budget as a version of the wall Yeah like we will have a digital wall we will have a smaller wall in these parts we are going to be reducing immigration in x y z so we're going to have a policy wall Um
0: <laughs> No yeah I think that's right I think he'll just honestly I think he'll probably like Walk right up to the edge of his lying and saying that like we built a wall, which he's kind of already done. I mean, yeah. he said he's been like we're, the wall is under construction, yeah. like we're building a yeah, wall the wall's now. Been under construction for a while. Now. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah.
1: <laughs> Those lots are really.
0: Um, there was that
2: changing. one post where he was showing off the different versions of the wall, and he was like, "Which wall do you guys <laughs> like best?" Yeah, <laughs> Twitter poll. <laughs> yeah, this is how
1: all policy decisions are yeah. from now on. Twitter poll.
2: I I wouldn't be surprised if the, like, shutdown-style budget wall thing happens again. Like, I really wouldn't be shocked if he is so myopic as to try to go at it again.
0: Yeah, I don't know. I don't know. I mean, I think—honestly, I think for him, it's just a question of whether or not he can, like, psychologically convince himself that he's actually won. And if he can do that, then he won't shut down the government. But if he believes that he's lost, he will, because he just can't stand to lose. Um, but, I don't know. We'll see. It's interesting nonetheless. Okay, who's next?
1: Yeah, I guess I can go. Okay, so to bring a little bit of like foreign policy spice to the podcast, always
0: you with the foreign policy spice.
1: Always me with foreign policy spice. So, um, if so, for those who don't know, India and Pakistan have always had sort of pretty tense international relations due to the fact that India and Pakistan used to be the same country, and then after like British rule ended, um, they sort of divided themselves based on quasi-religious grounds, with Pakistan being more Muslim and India being more Hindu, and the divide occurred in this region called the Kashmir region, which is coincidentally where I'm from. And uh, so, for decades, ever since um, like India got its independence from Britain, the Kashmir region has been like super, super contentious. So, a lot of war, like both my grandparents fought in the Kashmiri like conflicts. Um, And they sort of haven't ended properly, even though there's been a lot of, like, efforts on both sides sort of stop the, like, suicide bombings and, like, different, like, small, like, militia attacks across the border. (laughs) Um, Nothing has essentially happened in, like, the last 50 to 60 years as to resolve that. Um, And tensions around the Kashmiri region are sort of what people point out when they think of, like, an India-Pakistan nuclear war escalating Um, so something that happened recently is that a militant group in Pakistan carried out a suicide bomb attack, um, that killed a bunch of Indian troops in, in the Indian controlled region of Kashmir. And then to retaliate, India launched an airstrike on Pakistani territory in Kashmir, um, which like targeted the militant group's training facilities. And this is the first time that India has sent like air forces into Pakistan since the seventies, which is a really big deal. Um, and then the next day like Pakistan sort of retaliated with more airstrikes. Um, and so sort of things are definitely escalating in the region with like like obviously the air sh- airstrikes have gone like back and forth people have captured different pilots people have taken different people as prisoners of war, etc cetera, etc. Cetera. Um, and neither country's like executive powers have made like sort of concrete statements vowing to like de-escalate the crisis which is really concerning. And, yeah. I mean, on one hand, there's the argument that this has hap- been happening forever. So, if they were going to, like, launch nukes at each other, it would have happened by now. But then on the other hand, there's the argument that it's been, like, building up to this moment. And, like, this is when it's all going to go down. Personally, I think, like, an, like nuclear escalation is, like, unlikely. But I can definitely see this escalating into maybe, like, a more, like, proper, like, n- instead of militias, like, actual military, you know, confrontation between the two countries because Indians hate Pakistanis and Pakistani people hate Indians.
2: Right. Yeah. I think, uh, I mean, a few things worth noting. One, there's a decent argument that a lot of this is political posturing. Uh, Narendra Modi is up for re-election pretty soon. He's been running on True. a pretty staunch, like, pr- like India, pro-India nationalist platform yeah. that's pretty anti-Pakistan and anti-Muslim in general. Um, and so, in response to what has been a rallying cry for his party for a while, which is the idea of, like, Islamic terrorists. This is, like, one of the largest attacks they've seen in recent history. So Mm -hmm. there's a good chance that this is him just trying to show a bit of brinksmanship and, you know, a bit of hard power and retaliation to this sort of attack. And I also think that it's worth noting that Pakistan seems like they're very much trying to de-escalate. So basically what had happened was India had launched a strike on a, what they said was a terrorist holdout in uh, the Kashmir region, correct? And Pakistan said that the place that they hit was deeper, like, farther away from internal Pakistan than it actually was. They said that they tried to make it seem as though India had launched something basically in the neutral zone, whereas they had actually launched a strike well into Pakistani territory. And that seems like a move on the part of Pakistan to say, look, no harm, no foul. We don't want to really, like, escalate a conflict that we know that we have no chance of winning um, it seems like India hasn't really backed down, but then again, if they were posturing, they'd have no reason to.
1: That's fair. That's very fair. I think, yeah, with Modi's reelection, election like, in terms of like, Indian politics, Modi is very, very Indian nationalist. And, like, obviously Indian people hate Pakistani people. So um, sort of being anti-Pakistan is always popular. Sort of showing, showcasing that could definitely be, like, an incentive to do so.
0: What, if any, do you think is the United States' role in this conflict? Well, interesting. Or or what stake—is the United States a stakeholder in this? Do we have an interest in this? I mean, other than, you know, like avoiding global nuclear winter.
2: I mean, it's definitely interesting because one of the bigger complaints about, um, like, the backlash in Washington has been Trump's inability to appoint diplomats— Um, whether it be for lack of effort on the administration's part or just, like, blockage by Democrats in Congress to just, like, not let votes go through. But at the current moment, we have, like, an acting head of the uh, the Department of Defense. The Secretary of State position is, like, very... Like, Mike Pompeo is very new to the job. And we don't have an ambassador to Pakistan, um, which is if you look in, like, past conflicts with and pakistan those are the positions that have notoriously like been in contact whereas like we have an acting amba- uh, ambassador to pakistan who hasn't actually been in contact with the pakistani people because he just don't, doesn't have those networks and those ties at that moment um so it doesn't seem like the u.s is playing like a very front seat role in this just because we don't have the international infrastructure to do that so and like and like when asked the administration hasn't really been able to give like a solid response they're like oh like you're Textbook, we're in talks, we're trying to mitigate the situation, we're trying to learn more, but it doesn't really seem like we have a very hard plan on intervening.
1: Also, historically, I would say, of all the sort of like regional hotspots, I think America's intervened less in the Indo pacific yeah. region than they have in like the South China Sea or like South America. Yeah. So, I what,
2: was, which is sort of surprising, I think. Oh, totally. I surprising. feel like the U.S has just as much strategic interest in India as they would have in... I mean, definitely as they would have in the Middle East. Like, the fact that they would be so involved in, like, the Kurds' conflicts, but not, like... you but know, not like, the
1: Kashmir region is very Not like a country with, like, yeah. a billion
2: people. Yeah.
1: The fact that they're super invested in the South China Sea, yet yeah. do nothing in Kashmir, is very weird. But, I mean... And well, that- I think it has...
0: I mean, to me, it seems like that has a little bit of, like, a, just because I mean, it involves China, right? Like, there's this massive...
1: Yeah, but like, I would, I mean, I'm not going to say that India is like a bigger power than China, but India is definitely way bigger than most of the countries in the Middle East. That's like, very e- true. Yeah. the truth, yeah. And that Middle also East, just yeah. seems
2: like a slam dunk. I mean, especially for any conservative president, right? Because if you get to have like an anti Pakistan campaign, you're like fighting against in one the, of the terrorists. Countries
1: that's like one of the largest, most economically profitable yeah, countries. Yeah. Like, in the if world. you can sign a,
2: if you can do like a dual free trade agreement with India while at the same time, like, getting to brag about all the terrorists you kill, that seems like easy <laughs> fodder for the GOP.
0: Yeah. <laughs> okay, so, who's next, Justin?
1: Yeah, only one left.
2: Yeah. So, my story is the second meeting between Trump and Kim Jong-un, which took place in Vietnam this past week. Mm-hmm. Uh, this was expected to be by most, to be a follow-up to the, what was in, inevitably a kind of vague outcome from the last meeting, where Trump and Kim, they left on good terms, they didn't actually get anything down pat, but they did say that they were going to continue having talks and they were eventually going to get to something con- concrete This was supposed to be the point at which they got to something concrete. And at the beginning, it seemed really nice. They were exchanging pleasantries. And then something happened, I think, on the second or third day. They seemed a little bit colder, a little bit more distant. And Trump's explanation of this at the end was that also note that Rip just Googled Kim (laughs) Jong-un. Every time I...
0: Okay, here's the thing. Every time I... Partially, I was looking for a specific story that I read about this the other day but secondarily every time i he he looks so funny
1: kim jong un he looks so funny and so every
0: time i hear so his funny. name i just i like i just want to i want to see him Riff, why
2: don't you tell him that
0: uh, you know, i would am terrified too <laughs> because he's a murderer
1: but <laughs> I just, after watching the interview, I am not scared of Kim Jong Un really, yeah. at all. That's a, Hot take.
2: That's a good data point. <laughs> yeah. So anyway, Trump in his press conference. Obviously, it's not Kim Jong un style to get a press com- to do a press conference. So we didn't really hear from him afterwards, mostly because he doesn't need to because he doesn't get voted for. Uh, but in Trump's press conference afterwards, he basically blamed Kim's potential stance on sanctions to be the reason for the negotiations falling through. Essentially, according to Trump, Kim wanted a full release uh, or a full lifting of all the current sanctions on North Korea. Trump viewed this as a non-starter. That seemed like a pretty smart decision. Uh, So the essential debacle was over North Korea's largest nuclear testing site, which North Korea claims it's its only nuclear testing site. No one believes this, and I think for good reason. So Kim Jong-un's offer was, we'll close down our so-called only nuclear testing site. In exchange, you'll lift all the sanctions. If it were true that they only had one nuclear testing site and we didn't have verifiable evidence that they had, like, uranium deposits everywhere else, this would seem like a good deal, right? It would basically mean the operational end of North Korea's nuclear program in exchange for a lifting of sanctions. The problem is anybody with two brain cells to rub together knows that there are other nuclear testing sites, and any deal that involves a full lifting of leverage would just be a non-starter. Um, although... I think the
0: key point is the president doesn't have two to rub together. He has simply... <laughs> Well, in this, in this situation, he did. He has perhaps one.
2: I think there was a decent chance—I think one of the bigger fears was that Trump sort of, like, gave the cow and the farm away in <laughs> in negotiations with Kim and, like, just offered up some really bad deal.
0: Only someone from New York City, so quote-unquote in New York City, would say that.
2: So, anyway, um, there was fear that Trump would make some bad deal just to be able to claim victory at the end of the day, and he didn't do that, which is good. Um, there were Call some, him.
0: like— I'm so proud of him. Good Trump.
2: <laughs> Rip, I think most of your takes can just be summarized as Trump bad, Rip angry. <laughs> no, I mean, I just like, I just, that voice he is wet. such a
0: <laughs> effing baby and like, <laughs> he goes to Vietnam and the bar is On
2: the so
0: floor. <laughs> low. It is so low. Like. The fact that he didn't like relinquish the United States, like full force of the United States armed forces to like the defense and support of the North Korean people and agree to lift all sanctions with nothing in return is like, oh my God, thank God you're my president is so strong. Like, it's like, give me a break. Like, give me a freaking break. If President Obama had sat on the same stage on like equal height footing as Kim Jong-un, and said he's a great leader. I mean, we, like, this country would have just erupted in, like, flames. It's crazy. I'm sorry. Anyway, keep anyway. going.
2: Well, I, okay, so I do think that... I'm not saying we have to, like, roll out the fucking red carpet for him, but I, he does deserve credit. I think if you're in a position where you're working with a nuclear power, your immediate instinct is to get the nukes away from them as quick as possible. And so you, there is a tendency, I think... To give away too much in those sorts of proceedings because the other side has so much leverage, and I think the fact that he- do they
0: they're not like they're not going to nuke us is the like right, I, I don't say, think, I, I think was... he deserves literally no credit. He has accomplished nothing.
2: You could well, I mean, you could say with ninety nine point nine 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 percent certainty that they're not going to nuke us, but like it only takes one time for like everyone to die.
0: They're. I mean, they're not like. I look, I'm not saying we shouldn't work obviously actively towards a solution in which like North Korea is not a nuclear power, but like it is okay, not so risk. That- it is it is not to the point where like I don't know.
2: I don't know, but like if you had to if you had to make a prediction in the next twenty years, what's the most likely thing to end humanity? It's I would say the odds on favorite is like a nuke from North Korea. And I, like, I would Maybe say not that, from North Korea. I don't
0: Korea. think it's from North Korea. No. I think or it's a, a, maybe a nuclear weapon, but not from North okay, Korea. Okay,
2: so a nuclear weapon. And okay. there are like two places, three places that that could possibly originate. And I think if we have the opportunity with like a little bit of diplomatic finesse to end the risk of that happening, then I think that should be our number one priority. I just think I think Kim
0: Jong un is is not stupid, actually. And I think if I know, I totally the agree. only thing that the first summit is that what we call like a summit? Where do they have the first summit? Just. Anyway, it doesn't matter. Singapore. Singapore. Um, It was actually, like, it it was interesting and a lot of coverage, I think, on him and on that summit in general was interesting because it sort of revealed that he is not an idiot, right? Like, he's kind of a smart guy. He's a lot more savvy than his predecessors. Um, And at the end of the day, like, the reason that North Korea gets away with crazy shit all the time is because they, if anyone questions them, like, wave their nukes in the air and threaten to blow everybody up. But you know, they're not going to do that. Like, I just don't think they're going to do that. Um, okay. and it's not, it's not like, I think it's a dis- different situation with Russia. Like, you know, the United States would obliterate North Korea militarily if we ever so chose to do so. Um, those redundant so chose to do so, but just forgive me. Um, I don't know. I just, I think, I think the whole notion that like there's even a, a reason to sit down at like a conference in Vietnam and like talk this one through is ridiculous.
1: So, what do you think would be like, like, the ideal deal from? Like, what deal could you have foreseen coming out of this meeting in Vietnam?
0: Like- I don't. I don't think there should be any meeting in Vietnam. I think. I think Trump should continue to draw a. you know. Okay. Well, let me walk back when I said earlier. He, he Trump deserves no credit whatsoever. I think Trump deserves a little bit of credit for being willing to take such a hard ass stance on North Korea. Okay. I mean, I think the way that he did it was very inappropriate, but I actually generally agree with the like, look, you can't threaten a us, so, or, like we're gonna do something about it. Like I I think that's that's that I think that's a decently prudent stance to have. Right. Right. But in my mind, like the only way that you genuinely are going to get North Korea to abandon their nuclear weapons program is to make them hurt so badly economically that the regime itself like I cannot think, continue I to survive korea and i think the only way America. to do that is through beijing is through china and we are currently absolutely not in, in a position to leverage our relationship with china to make that happen
1: i think that north korea has shown us that they don't give enough shit about their people to for economic sanctions to affect their nuclear program
0: well that's what i'm saying is it has to hurt it has to hurt the country so bad to where the regime is, is hurting to where they too. Can't I mean, afford I mean to where new. they literally can't, they don't have electricity, they don't have oil, they don't have.
2: Yeah, but I mean, I think past, like, like North Korean history would demonstrate that they are willing to fight until the Kim family themselves runs out of essentials. Yes. So, like, the bright line for North Korea deciding to, like, hang them up is if the Kim personal household, because given they have a lone decision maker, the second he runs out of food and stuff, then they'll give in, but like, the how much money? Happening. How much money does it really cost to upkeep his life? A few hundred thousand dollars? Like I, they don't I, need like that. I think a it is an exaggeration. economy.
1: I don't think it is. I think like for the last like several so long as age, he can live in, shown a- that they don't care if their people starve. They don't care if none of the if nobody but Kim and the nuclear facility have power. Yeah,
2: and but like in, in the past, room, it seems like
0: I think there's still room to. I think there's. I think. I think there's still like a margin for further economic And, no, I, and like sense. I
2: I totally th- I agree and I think like sanctions are one of the most powerful tools we have in a place like North Korea. But I do think that it's a really far and I think it's a dangerous stretch to say that there shouldn't be some sort of diplomatic summit. Like I think if looking back on Trump's presidency in 20 years I would say this is probably the best thing he's done like yeah, getting a sit down I with totally Kim Jong Un. Because even if you agree that it's good to have economic leverage over a place having economic leverage but closed communication does next to nothing because it means that you're putting like top-down pressure on a country and they don't know what you want in return and you can't refine the details of that potential negotiation which means the only thing that they can do is like hope like give up something that they think that you want hope it's enough to get the sanctions lift but in absence of any conversation it's going to be a way clunkier process
1: And I can also see a future where, like, we put on so many sanctions on them, they're economically broke. But guess what? They have nukes. (laughs) Guess what? They all don't got oil, but
0: we got nukes. (laughs)
1: Yeah, they don't have anything but nukes. So what are they going to do when they know that they're a
2: failed state? And like when your backs, yeah, (laughs) when your backs (laughs) against the wall, like. So.
0: Yeah, I don't know. I don't know. I just whatever.
2: I think that it like when saying that the leverage we have over North Korea is that we could put negative economic pressure on them, I think that misses the other side of the coin, which is that we could put positive economic uplift on them. And I think Carrots that's... Yeah, exactly. And I think that's one thing that Trump has been tweeting about recently, the idea that he thinks that there's potential for North Korea to this be like this large manufacturing power. And while it seems silly, right, I think the idea that we can give some way for... Right now, North Korea is in the equivalent of like a hostage situation, right? They have a gun to some random dude's head and they're inside a house. And there's really only two ways out at this point, right? Like... You could, we're, your idea is we just wait them out until he runs out of food. The other idea is that he shoots the guy in the head and, then, like, tries to run. But if we're giving him a way out, which is, like, oh, here's an alternative where you could, like, give up your nuclear weapons, disarm, and then you could have, like, a decent economy and, like, maybe you can make a real country out of yourself. Yeah, because,
1: like, like, look at South Korea. Look how well they're doing. They have lights. And so much... South Korea is balling right now.
2: Yeah. And so I think, like, a situation where Trump can, like... Get Kim in a room and be like, "Here is the alternative. Like, you could have a real economy. You could be a real leader. So you you could get do you support? The
0: do you support regime change in North Korea?
2: I mean, that's a super vague question. Like, if um, I could like, snap, is it? If I could like <laughs> snap my fingers right now and put in like, you, you know, that's not what I mean. I mean, good like, God, like,
0: do you support the like United States regime yes. change?
2: I don't know. Yes, <laughs> I do. Interesting. The U.S.
1: did it so many times in South America, and you know, it was really messed up, but also. I support it in this instance. I just think
2: that there's, like... <laughs> like, if Rip's argument is true, that, like, there's a very... And I think it is, that there's a very low chance of a North Korean first strike because then they lose all of their leverage and they get obliterated. Mm-hmm. I think that's definitely true, but I think, like... It, for example, say you have like a small child, right, and the only leverage he has is that he's gonna like break one of your things, right? If you're like, you could just sit there and try to negotiate with him, but if your new plan is to just go like grab the thing out of his hands, there's a much higher chance that the thing gets ripped. Similarly, bad if you, analogy,
0: bad, not a bad analogy. analogy. Not a bad analogy. To me, analogy. this is to me this is like an easy game theory problem, right? North Korea knows that if they launch a nuke,
1: they will get destroyed. There is
0: a a, like, decent chance that with the technology we have, we are able to avoid it ever actually striking the mainland United States um, or it, like, in the the sense that we eliminate it mid-flight or that it just doesn't make it because their technology is shoddy. As soon as that happens, like, we are going to war with North Korea. When that happens, they lose. And, like, Kim Jong-un is probably going to die. And so, like, there is literally no outcome in which North Korea launching a nuke at us is or or anyone else in the world turns out well for them well, and they know that
2: well and so look that, i'm not agree, saying, i'm I not agree. saying
0: it discounts the threat of having a total nut job with his finger over the button that could you know end the world forever but i think we have to like remind ourselves constantly of the rational versus irrational like fears that we project onto the situation
2: i i think that's definitely true and i think that's more of a reason to oppose regime change right because if that argument is true then the current situation is stable right there's a very low chance of a nuclear first strike but I agree. if you go I, agree. In I don't support regime and try change. to like assassinate kim Jong un then if he has nothing to live for and like if I the ships are agree. coming to the shores then like what the hell else is he gonna do besides launch a nuke? Right? he has like if <laughs> I he agree. has one tool at his disposal and it's the button, and if he sees no, people come to kill him, thing is
1: to do it secretly before he knows.
2: But like odds that works out well, uh, well, ninety percent max.
1: Well, I think it's possible.
0: All right, well, I think we've covered that. So, since no one brought it up in their top story rundown, should we talk about Michael Cohen? Let's do it. Yeah, let's do it. So, what do we think about Michael Cohen?
2: Uh, love him as 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 a liberal. I love everything he says, and he's right. Or maybe we should ask him. I I should
0: pose a more pointed question to the group. Do we trust Michael Cohen?
2: Yes. Anything that's bad for Trump is good for me, the left. Okay. <laughs> this has been this has been Justin's TED talk on partisanship. <laughs> Glad
1: we got that
2: down. No, I okay. Here's here. I'm actually going to make a real point out of this. I thought the hearing and i watched an embarrassing amount of it was atrocious it was such a mess it it was was, i think such a mess a really like if you only had like an hour and you had to demonstrate to somebody (laughs) how how disgusting (laughs) and toxic american (laughs) politics has become i think it would be a great thing to show them it's one side of the aisle being like tell me more about the president being bad and the other side of the aisle being like you're mean to the president wow you are the devil And, like, that's the whole... And, like, there was no substance being debated. No one was like, I think Trump is this or I think Trump is that. It was one side being, like, you're a liar and the other side being, like, yeah, he is a liar but he lied for Trump and the other guy being, like, you can't be mean to Trump and it was that for four hours.
0: Yeah.
1: It was, yeah, it was pretty bad.
0: My main critique of the hearing was I felt like Democrats should have been more, like, like, patient but skeptical with Cohen. Like, to me, the best... The best like latching on and be like yes yeah 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 like to me the best the best way to take it is like look like you have lied before this body before under oath and like you did bad shit for a really long time so like you know you're not our best friend like you are going to prison but like we'll take you at your word that like you're trying to like make a new man out of yourself and tell the truth and like we'll hear you out you know what I mean and I think there was a little too much of like of like immediate and like willing just in total forgiveness um which which doesn't bother me in like a philosophical sense but um just i think from a political standpoint is seems uh dubious
1: okay so now i want to pose what i think is a more interesting question which is what are the implications <laughs>
0: now that you sat through my boring <laughs> bit, um, listen what? to Opni's more interesting question <laughs>
1: Um, What are the implications (laughs) of this hearing? For who and why? I
2: think uh, the Democrats got a little bit of a leg up in that... Because there's a number of people they could, like, make a political circus out of. Like, this isn't, like, the first time that this is going to happen, right? Like, the Democrats realize that they can now have a running brand of television where they just bring in former Trump people, like Omarosa types, that have turned against him, that they could just, like, sit down in a chair for four hours and it could be a whole game. And then sustain like i think the like history seems to s- say that sustained hearings like this that all make their way into the public spotlight probably will have some effect on approval ratings
0: yeah um i don't know i saw a lot of opinions i mean given they were probably by relatively liberal journalists who said like republicans didn't do an adequate job of diminishing cohen's credibility which i generally agree with but i don't know that it's like that consequential in terms of uh political approval of the president um I don't know I mean I think like Maggie Haberman said this on I think it was the daily uh podcast she was like either and I really like Maggie Haberman I think she's brilliant but this was kind of like a no shit moment she was like well either this will turn out to be just another series and like partisan uh circus shows uh throughout like the investigation of trump era or like in a year if there are impeachment proceedings like people will look back and see this is the first step and it's like okay well obviously um but i don't know my general sense is like not a huge deal to be honest
2: yeah i think it's one of those things where in absence of corroborating evidence the republicans do make a very good point that michael cohen lied before congress and is like a prolific liar i think the democratic argument that yeah he I, is a prolific liar i just liar, don't
1: understand what cohen's incentive is to lie now
0: no, yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, I, I agree.
1: You know, yeah. Like, what's the point? But I don't. I don't. Yeah, no, think, like, I don't I think, think that think... means
0: we have to say, "Oh, well, obviously, he's telling the whole like whole truth," and so you know, he must be. We, we should take everything he says and write it down as is. Is like the Bible. I mean, yeah. You know.
2: But it also didn't seem like he. I, one thing that I saw a lot was Democrats trying to solicit responses. For him to like Cohen to confirm some of the more raunchy stories we heard. like there were questions about like the P tape, and there were questions about whether or not Trump has like a love child and whether or not he like abuses Melania. And he, he categorically denied most of those things or all of the all of those three things. And so a lot of it had to do with, you know, he had some interesting information about like the Roger Stone stuff and like things that Trump had directed him to do. And I do think that if more corroborating evidence comes forward, then this could be like, legitimate evidence in whatever way shape or form i don't think anything like legal is going to come out of this i think it's just going to be more like trump president is shady and like has done shady things relating to paying off stormy daniels and relating to paying off other people um and i think it will have more political fallout than legal fallout i agree To, to be honest i
0: think that in terms of the standing of the the of donald trump with like in his office and with the american people i think that the rebuke of his national emergency is more consequential than this hearing because all that really matters at the end of the day is whether republicans are willing to stand up to him or not right like right. democrats would impeach the guy like today if they could i mean they hate him like every all, i i can't think of a single democrat in the well i mean there obviously maybe or some but like who would vote no if republicans also enough republicans also supported impeachment like they're just not bringing it up to save political face because they know they're not going to win, right? And so I think all that's a question is like, to what extent are Republicans start starting to defect from the president? To what extent are Republicans like begin to feel confident that they can defy the president and maintain support among his base? And I don't think the Cohen hearing changed any of that. So, I don't know. I mean, what will be remarkable is if Robert Mueller files criminal charges against the president and yeah, you I know that, that happens. Uh, Are are you, like, initiating a game of odds?
1: Yeah, mine are low. (laughs) Very low.
2: Yeah. Yeah, I know. That's,
0: that's like, a whole other thing. But
2: I think there's a decent chance that, like, impeachment proceedings happen. I'd say, like, one in four. Really? In 2019. Before
1: 2020. Really? Okay, one in four,
0: I think, is is not super. I mean, you know, yeah, I'd give it one in four. I would give
1: it one in ten.
0: I'd give it one in four.
2: I mean, there's no way to assess who's right in this situation. But. It's very true. <laughs> <laughs> we just, I just
1: make 10 simulations of the current American government.
0: All <laughs> right. Let it roll. Great talk about Cohen. Let's move on to the most exciting subject we can think of the national debt. Woo! So here's the thing, listeners. <laughs> What just happened is we started to talk about the United States debt and got into a deep discussion involving the logistics and philosophical implications of debt and the nature of currency. Uh, I think Avni said the words, quote, what is currency? We don't know. Um <laughs> So what we decided to do is to not talk about that on the podcast because it would be a multi-hour discussion, which would probably bore you to tears.
2: Yeah, long story short, after like 10 minutes of discussion, we realized that we had nothing that even resembled a rational idea. and nothing. That's e- not true. Okay. We just, or, we would- no, or a rational idea that we could like distill and share. Like We'd never conclude it. It would take us
0: a while to get there. Yeah. So uh, we're going to leave that for another time when we've talked a little bit more about it ourselves offline. For now, that's all we're going to put out for today. Uh, I am signing off at least live from studio b until next fall which will be my senior year and uh yeah thanks for tuning in hope you tune back in in the spring when harrison our other great host is back from oxford any other comments
1: we'll miss you
2: we will miss you i'll be back back back
1: i'll be back i'll be back
0: i'll bring back fresh takes from dc thanks for tuning in
2: want to give a huge shout out to KZSU, uh, the radio station
0: here on campus, uh, for letting us use their equipment. Thank you so much. And if you're in the Bay Area, tune in to 90.1 FM uh, for amazing music, sports, news, and uh, other cool radio stuff from KZSU. Thanks.